Hey, welcome to episode 110 of Tangible Takeaways. I'm Jackson, and today I'm going to talk about our posture coming to scripture being so incredibly important in tricky conversations. And I'm Todd. Thanks for those joining us, especially after the weekend message, knowing we were going to tackle some of the issues. I'm going to talk about the role of boundaries related to how we obey governing authorities or if we choose not to. This is a good one. Hang with us till the end. All that and more on this episode of Tangible Takeaways. Thank you for taking the time. So glad to be here. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, we might just rebrand this one to spicy, tangible takeaways or something. There's <laughs> a little extra um, sauce, yeah, a you, little heat. You lit a good fire for us this weekend and made some, you cashed some checks that I hope, <laughs> you wrote some checks I hope we can cash today. Yes. Uh, so we'll find out. But um, man, appreciated the the message and um, the f- book of First Peter, I think, though as a church family, we might be feeling kind of the weight or the tension of this passage and just get ready. It just keeps going for the next few weeks, <laughs> but um, we might be feeling the tension or the weight of this. Uh, but at the same time, I think going through this and honestly opening up ourselves and our hearts to God, being led to confession and repentance in areas that we've erred, um, it's going to serve us really well uh, as we get deeper into this election year and things yeah. are going to get nastier. So I just appreciate uh, yours and George and Kurt's leadership of us and our church in that area, because these are difficult conversations that we're going to step into today and over the next few weeks, but I think are going to set us up in really cool ways going forward. Yeah, thank you. And I, and again, remember what we said, we're doing this book now for a reason. Yeah, It's very intentional, and I, we know what the content of First Peter is, and we know the year we're probably in. Yeah. We know, at least right now, up till you know, the third week of February, we're pretty well aware of where we're at and we can only kind of guess at other things. But I do think, and I want to say, I appreciate if you're watching today with us, thank you for taking that, you know, we made a big deal in the message, a lot we can't get to come watch this week. So thanks for joining us and I look forward to it. And if you were, you know, with us on the weekend, in person or online, you might have felt like a sucker punch. Mm. Like the, we've been building this great foundation, chapter and a half, most perishable things. Yeah, lots hope, of encouragement, uh, some exhortation about sin areas, but outside of that, and more of just like, hey, here's who you are, and you know, let, you realize you are an exile and a foreigner. And now this is like, now we're really getting real about that. What does that actually mean? Yeah, when the rubber meets the road, and. The point is, if you felt a bit of a sucker punch, I would also remind you, so did Peter's audience then. Because mm. they they were reading the same book you're studying, and they get this, and they're like, oh, wait, now I was good with all this till this. These are the officials that are making my life very difficult. They're literally beating us. I mean, let's remember who were the first century r- recipients of this letter. Yeah, they're not thinking oh, these are the guys who shut down church gatherings a few years ago. Exactly. They're thinking these are the people who are beating us right now yeah. as he's reading that. I and mean, we're under that. the rulership of a, a very unjust regime as Rome was brutal yeah. in many ways, including taxation, right? We're going to get back to finances and money as Americans is a big deal to us. So don't think that first century recipients of this letter had it in any way easier, I would I would contend so much more difficult. Yeah, they're reading it and they're like, oh, this is beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> they're like, 
They're like, what? What yeah. is he talking about? And the emperor is literally, like we read today, that is the emperor that we're referring to as Caesar. So, I mean, we just got to get some context, right? For And so if, if you felt a bit of a, where'd that come from? Just know Peter's original audience totally would have felt that yeah. and kept reading. Yeah. And so let's cover just some quick kind of highlights from this weekend. Just what are kind of some uh, recap points so that people can kind of pick up where we left off as we jump into this conversation. Yeah, so what we see, saw a lot, we looked at specifically First Peter 2, 11 through 17. And what we saw a lot of was God has established authorities. There are people that were to these first century uh, audience, they were being accused of doing wrong, wrongly. Like they weren't they weren't sinning, they weren't doing things against the culture, but that's what they're being accused of. And so Peter's saying, hey, don't get in the debate, mm. demonstrate. Mm. And not like pick it, I mean, demonstrate through actions who you are and let that silence, that foolish talk, and with the goal of even planting seeds because accusers are not the enemy. Accusers are pawns. And the expectation would be that accusers would actually come to Christ and let your lives be consistent with that. So you can't hate those who are accusing you wrongly. You can't hate those who are even oppressing you through governing roles because the goal is always for their salvation. Mm. So those are some of the big swaths, you know, of what we were looking at. Yeah. Yeah, definitely zooming us out to see our lives as more than just making them easy for us or enjoyable for us. But man, the way to think about, wow, the way that I could approach suffering could lead the people inflicting my suffering to be saved. Yeah, That is such a selfless perspective that yeah. is not native to any one of us. It's a very Jesus yeah. way, right? Yeah, it is adopting Jesus's way of life. And um, be- I, I think almost that phrase, I want you to live such good lives among the pagans, that sets off all of what follows. Such yeah. good lives is submitting to governing authorities. It is submitting in the workplace. It is embodying the sacrifice of Jesus and it is submitting in marriage. That's this example. Such good all lives flows. Out of flows. That. This whole next section that we're going to be in for the coming weeks, it, it all flows out of that such good lives. And if that was just the sales pitch off the front, who wants to live such a, you know, the real word being a beautiful life, an attractive life, who wants to live an attractive life? That's what marketing is all about. We all want to live an attractive life, but that looks a little bit different than I think we thought it was going to. And so um, I'm excited to unpack it. We're going to talk about some of the exceptions to the rule um, here in the conversation. And, uh, and I'm going to ask, we got about 20 questions from the church family. We're not going to have time to get to all of them, but I've kind of summarized them them into some, yeah. And there was a lot of consistent themes to those questions. Um, so we're going to get to some of those as well. And I, and I couldn't, and I wouldn't even dare to assume tone behind questions that I can't hear, you know, it's hard to read tone. Um, but I would just encourage all of us as we approach this conversation, some people I could imagine, even tuning in as this is coming out with some steam coming out of their ears. Like, I can't wait <laughs> to hear what he's got to say kind of a thing. Um, I, I would just encourage all of us to make sure that we posture ourselves appropriately in the conversation. Um, 
there's really no way to say things stronger in scripture than how Peter said things this weekend. It's God's will. That is a very, there's a lot of commands that we live off of that don't come with that kind of strength. And we hold to them dearly as believers. And so let's just remember, this is the inerrant word of God. These are the words of God. They're not wrong. They're not incorrect. And they're not on trial. They are eternal and will stand the test of time. I am on trial. My life is on trial in comparison to what God has revealed to me in his word. And so let me just for a second reorient the conversation as we are going to very gently ask, but are there exceptions to this? And it seems inconsistent with some other things we see in scripture. So what do we make sense of that? But we ask that in all humility, not saying that why I oughta and what the heck, this is wrong. No, this is God's word. This is best for my life to live in accordance with it. Um, And I need to, in repentance and humility, say, where am I out of line? Not seeking to just baptize my entire life and say, well, because I love Jesus, everything that I do is great. I'm all kinds of broken. And so where do I get out of line with this? And let me come in humility. So I just want to encourage everybody watching and listening, if we could take that posture together and say, this is the word of God. We trust in it. And I need to put myself subject to it, under it and evaluate my life in accordance with it. I think that posture would serve us well for finding truth and its application for us today. Yeah. Oh, that's super well said, Jackson. And I just think if we can do that, and, and it's interesting, right? Up until this point, everything that you just said, I think was relatively easy for us to do. Yeah, yeah. I gotta think of myself anew as a foreigner now. That takes some work, but Oh, I'm born again, yeah. imperishable inheritance. Jesus is the cornerstone. I buy into that. You know, it's like those things we could look at and go, that's it. I'm in. Like, yes, everything you said, authoritative and errant. And even First Peter didn't it start with this idea of even how Scripture was written. Yeah. So, I mean, it's even underlying this concept. It's not Peter's commentary. This is thus saith the Lord. But now we get to some stuff where rubber meets the road. It's real life challenges. And to be fair, if you're frustrated by these truths, chances are it's not a theoretical frustration. It's because you feel burned. Mm. It's because you've had experiences. It's because you feel like this has been unfair. Fill in the blank. You might not even just, you just flat out don't trust governing authorities. Yeah. All the all the above. So we know there's a context too for those that are watching that this has a, a significant, I'm not just frustrated to be frustrated. I'm not just theoretically frustrated. I'm frustrated because of the past or what I anticipate in the future. And we get that. But again, God's word, we want to come to it humbly and we want to recognize its authority over our lives. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Okay. So now in all gentleness and humility, let's kind of try to understand what maybe even some of these exceptions to the rules are. But before we get into all of the exceptions that we even see in scripture, you mentioned some things this weekend about scripture talks about government, maybe a little bit more than we would have thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, what what would scripture say is kind of even the role of government in the life of not just the believer, but just God's kind of ordinance of government? What's the kind of thought there behind that? Yeah, and like you said, I th- I didn't realize what was really pretty, I think, apparent in scripture for the longest time 
I was sharing with you earlier today, it was actually in 9-11, and wondering how do we as Americans respond to what's been done against us? And I remember just being confused and talking to my senior pastor at the time, I was up in Oregon, and him just being very like, this isn't a problem for me. Like, I don't have to think hard about this because of what I read this weekend in both First Peter 2 and Romans 13, but we just didn't get a lot of time to make much of it. Listen to First Peter 2, um, talking about to submit to emperor and governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong. This is verse 14 in chapter 2, and to commend those who do right, mm. who punish those who do wrong, commend those who do right. No matter what governing body has ever existed on the planet, that's the essence of the accountability for all human authority, whether those who believe in Yahweh and his son Jesus or not, mm. that's the role of government. And it's reiterated in chapter 13 of Romans, um, where it says here, um, authorities, the authorities that exist, first, uh, this is still verse one, uh, have been established by God, Consequently, whoever rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Then he gets to this role. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, hmm. but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you'll be commended. So both of these amplify the role of government is to commend, to um uh, encourage those who do right and to l correct, condemn even is the word used in Romans 13, those who do wrong. Punish was the word in First Peter 2. So it's powerful to know that, that government, again, all human authority over other humans, yeah. governing authorities have a mandate by God, commend those who do right, punish those who do wrong. Hmm. That's really important to know, and that's true of Canada's government today, true of Argentina's, true of France, true of Sri Lanka, wherever you go in the world, that is an accountability to, of all human governing agencies. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense when you zoom out to just the biblical meta-narrative. God has a real passion for order. Hmm. He brings order to chaos and creation. He establishes order to humanity. There's some sort of order that goes on with the angels that we don't know much about, but there's clearly order there sure. in a space that has no sin in angelic arenas. Um, there's order in the home and in marriage. There's uh, order that God wants in the church. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians, that God's not honored in disorderly worship. God loves order. And so naturally, in the largest gatherings of people, the largest representations of people in their nations and their governments, of course, God cares about order there as well. And you could say it was demonstrated so well to the Jewish people. The first five books of our Bible, the law, are given not just like legal law. There's a lot of religious code there as well. But the point is it was touching every area of life to do exactly that, to bring order and what happens, those who do right are commended, those who do wrong are punished. Mm. And, and God lays it out, this is what that looks like, this is what this looks like. So God has demonstrated that through the unique people that he called his own in the former covenant, but then commands that, here are two New Testament passages that command the same thing. Yeah, 
So true. And let me insert, I'll get to more questions from people down the line here, but let me insert kind of a recurring question that made a lot of sense. I expected to see a, a good amount of these come in related to church shutdowns. Um, we saw that, what was that, like three years ago now? Four, now. four. Um, About four years ago, we saw this mandate from governing authorities at a federal level and a local level that there needed to be shutdowns of gatherings because of this health crisis related to COVID. And um, obviously there were churches that abided by that, churches that didn't. We at HDC did. Um, And people are wondering, man, what do I make of that with this submit to governing authorities? Now that we've even touched on this role of government, they're supposed to uh, promote good and and condemn evil. That's their like God-given um, task. So knowing that, what do we make of that instruction to shut down our church gatherings? Yeah, when we look back four years ago, yeah. we think. So realize there's been a lot of growth and clarity uh, from scripture from just trying to process things four years later than there was in the moment. Mm-hmm. It was really hard to go, man, in real time. I don't have a playbook for this. I don't know what to yes, do. Nobody expected it. And it was great when I, this all happened while I was down in Redlands and calling Pastor George and going, what are you guys doing? Because I, I don't know what to do myself. Really helpful that other leaders of other churches could help each other process what was going on. So I think in that dilemma, you have two really strong things that a Christian had to navigate and Christian leaders had to navigate. Number one, what we just saw, the role of government. Government officials believed that as people gathered together in dense spaces with a highly contagious disease, it was just going to continue to spread like wildfire. And no matter what your view on the coronavirus and how many people it killed, the point is that was the premise that at least we were hearing. I'm not going to get into conspiracies and what did they really mean, but that's what we were being told. Hence, it wasn't just church gatherings that were being told not to meet indoors, but it was movie theaters, concerts, fill in the blank, any large gathering where all everyone is together. Schools, great example that we're told not to meet in those kinds of gatherings. So that's why I never saw it primarily as religious persecution, but as simply this is just one of the real challenging deals. But for the Christian, remember, you could say for the moviegoer, I'll watch from home. Like, I just won't go to movies. That's what that is. And there's not like a compelling, like, oh, my life is falling apart. For the believer, what, what, what was the verse that was said so much during the pandemic in Hebrews 10, let us not give up meeting together. We see demonstrably in the book of Acts, people gathered at least weekly, if not more often, to have this connection with other believers. So that's the tension, right? Mm-hmm. A little different for moviegoers when we believe that we're actually called by God to gather, as well as that um, uh, in this process of being told not to gather indoors, then now that's in violation. And we have really one of the same problems we're going to look at more examples of. And like you said, different churches went different directions with that. But as I was processing, I actually taught through First Peter at Trinity Church during the pandemic, because I believe this book would be so helpful for us to navigate that course. And other um, churches, leaders interpreted these passages differently. Mm. But for me, the tension could be resolved with, we won't gather indoors because our government's directing us not to, but that they didn't say we couldn't gather outdoors. Mm. 
and especially with some social distancing and whatnot. And like most churches, we were primarily online for months from probably mid-March to mid-June, March, April, May, April, May, June. So three months, pretty much all online. Would I do that differently? Maybe. But the reality is that's at least a way we could gather in our homes for worship. And then as we began to open that up and gather outdoors, that seemed amenable as well as, and it was just a hard thing when I had people in my church, like there are people in this church, a high desert church, who just didn't see the value of gathering outdoors. I I always tell a great story. We had a great ministry with adults with disabilities at Trinity. And I'll just never forget one of the gentlemen from that group came up to me and I had shared the challenges we're working through and what we're getting even accused from even other believers, other churches by not going indoors. And I just remember very gently him coming up to me and going, well, Pastor Todd, didn't Jesus preach outdoors? And it was just this beautiful thing from this wonderful, kind, loving individual that just captured what are we losing our minds over? We're getting to meet. Now, it was harder to meet outdoors in the desert, brutally cold in the winter, stupid hot in the summer. So not every region had the temperate climate that Redlands did. But all I'm saying is that was how we worked through that tension. It's very fair to disagree with that. But that's how we didn't just let go of, well, government mandates don't apply. No, we're trying to pay attention to 1 Peter 2. Romans 13, but we're trying to do it in a way also to maintain this biblical call to gather. Mm. Yeah, so what I'm hearing you say is the mandate to not gather indoors very different than a mandate to not gather. Exactly. Right, that's a significant difference. The fact that we could still gather didn't present an opportunity in our eyes at HDC or in your mind leading Trinity at the time for civil disobedience because we were still allowed to gather, just not in a way that we were previously accustomed to. to. And then similarly, not seen as an overstep from governing authorities, minus the, this is almost really the, you know, you said us and other churches interpreted these passages differently. I'm almost wondering if it really wasn't about the interpretation of the passage, but the interpretation of the circumstances, because the way you presented it, makes a lot of sense for why we would abide by what the government is saying. They're presenting instructions for the good of the public. We think it's dangerous for people to meet indoors for large gatherings because of the spread of this virus. Well, that is for the common good, and that's their God-given task. Now, some were suspect about maybe their intention or if they really were promoting good or whatever, um, but taking it at face value Right. And I think that was really ultimately the difference was the interpretation of the heart behind the mandate, which, man, that is a tricky situation to slice and dice and figure out what. But for us, taking it at face value, a a good thing and a godly thing for us to submit to, knowing that that was for that was for the purpose of good or the intent of good. And that's their God given right. And it's our God given instruction to submit to that. So is that fair what I'm... Yeah, I think it's fair. And, and you did a good job walking out those, in that, those two parts of the tension. Had they said, you may not gather in any way, 
that's called the house church in China. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that's a whole different ball game to which, and we'll talk about some examples of civil disobedience in a moment, that I think the church should have had a very different response if that was the case. And what did most churches do? And I would I commended Trinity for this, a church that hadn't changed their service times in 18 years. We were changing them weekly to accommodate for different things online and then outdoors. And I told them, man, we grew in flexibility. Mm. That's a great quality to have. So I don't wanna, again, I don't wanna see all the silver linings in the gray clouds, but we did walk away with some things that made us better than just making us bitter, mm. right? So, and I'm grateful for that. I think HDC learned some of those things that through that hard way as well. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Okay, so getting out of that recent thing and kind of having the baseline now of this is the role of government, let's talk about sometimes we've talked about scripture tells us submit to governing authorities. It is God's will for God's sake. We see that in First Peter here. Now we've got to wrestle with the fact that all throughout scripture, we have these examples of God's people rebelling against governing authority, a, a direct command from governing authority. So we see Yes, this is God's will. This is for God's sake that we do this. But there are times that we don't do this. And it's really important for us to discern what makes it that time or not. Yeah. And I think that was the real difficulty with that COVID conversation is like everybody's trying to figure out, do we gear up right now? Is this that time? Is it not that time? Mm -hmm. What do we do? And um, so let's go through some of these examples that we find in scripture and kind of see why was this the right time for civil disobedience. Um, Hebrew midwives, they're instructed yeah. to um, kill all the babies that are being born. And actually all the boys. All the boys, the yeah, that's right, because of all of the, um, just the overpopulation that's happening in the Hebrew community. And so what do we make sense of with their disobeying that? Yeah, so we're second book of the Bible. This is very early in the recording of his biblical history. And these Hebrew midwives, so many of those who are helping women give birth in that moment, were to kill, I mean, that's another way of saying genocide. We were wiping out all the males so that the population wouldn't continue to increase as directed by the Egyptian government. We know Moses is a prime example of one of those boys who was hidden away and that, mid, mid, he, that Hebrew midwife did not obey the edict that came. And you, we don't know all of her motivations. We don't know why she did that specifically with Moses. And we know Moses wasn't the only one, but we're just using that example. But as we extrapolate that, and by the way, what did this Hebrew midwife not have? Any of the Bible. Moses was the guy who wrote the first five <laughs> chapters. She had history, but she didn't have any of the Bible to work yeah. from. But you could almost make a point from Romans chapter two, that moral compass that we have. This is wrong. Mm. This, is, this is murder and I'm not gonna be part of it. Now, as she made that decision to not um, kill Moses as soon as he was born, but to hide him and go along with that, saving his life, she made a conscious decision to violate the law of the land based on a premise that was every human being is made in the image of God and is therefore valuable, and anything to take away that life is murder. So murder was something she was not willing to do under a government, and we would say that's not the role of government to lead someone to murder newborn children. That's not promoting that's good. That's not promoting good. So she was in tension, and she chose to defy the government and seems to be biblically validated for it. Commended, yeah. So 
so we go, okay, there's one example of civil disobedience. And when I heard you say the word rebel against, it's totally the right word, but we often think in rebellious, like, hey, and raising our a fist. And, yeah, having the whole big on, she just chose to disobey. And there were very real consequences she should have faced. We don't read that she does. That'll be important as we get into some of these other stories. Yeah, yeah, that's a great, so not, not promoting good in that situation. Um, disobeys governing authority. And you're right, Exodus goes to a length then to commend that and say, and they were blessed because of it, you know? So that's an interesting one because that's not consistent with everything else that we see um, necessarily in all these situations of disobedience. And let's extrapolate a point. A governing authority asks you to murder someone. I would say before God, you're good not to. Yeah. And we'll get to this other part and you be ready to suffer what may come because of that. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Okay, so then we've got three instances that happen in Daniel's life. It's like Daniel's the book of defying <laughs> governing authorities. Um, and really uh, relatable to the, in, to the first Peter context, Daniel's in exile, Yeah. right? I mean, he has been taken from his home. He's in Babylon now, and they do things different in very. Babylon, very different. Um, and, uh, and it's, it's interesting to see these kind of three different sort of three very different circumstances to yeah. disobedience. So the first one is food for people not familiar with the story. Um, they're brought in as kind of the, um, the wealthy, the powerful, the smart and the desirable from Israel into Babylon. And, uh, they're being raised up to be these kind of wise men and serve the king and stuff like that. And in the process, they're being fed this just great, beautiful, decadent meals. And uh, and Daniel and his boys asked the guys in charge, hey, can we not eat the meat and just eat the vegetables because this violates our, our kosher law? And, um, and let us just do it for a little bit and you see if there's a noticeable difference between us and the other guys. And they see it and are, they're actually commended for their uh, this is one of those, another instance, like the Hebrew midwives, they're commended for their disobedience or they're very gentle. Hey, could we do this differently? Um, what do we make of that one? Yeah. What I love about the Daniel 1 passage, for a lot of us, we'd really struggle. Food laws? Like, you're going to go to the wall for food laws? Well, in the former covenant, they were that important. Yeah. We we read we're in a new covenant now and very clear uh, acts when the blanket of these unclean animals are dropped down. I just was sharing with someone this weekend, Luke gives commentary in the book of Acts, and by doing this, God made all things clean. Mm. So it's very clear that's not an issue for us today, but it was uh, in Daniel's day. Some of us today would lose it at the implementation of food laws. <laughs> like, come on, man. I don't yeah. know about this Christianity thing. I like, I like bacon. <laughs> but in that, though, what, what we're seeing, what I really appreciate we don't know the rest of the story if the guy that Daniel appealed to would have said no. We don't know. But what, what I love about the story is the way Daniel appealed to him. Mm. We're not doing a, a fast, like a sit-in, protest, hunger fast. He politely said, hey, we have these dietary restrictions that don't fit with what you're serving. Could we just have fruit and vegetables? And you, and then you see how we're doing. If your fear is we're going to be gaunt and we're not going to be healthy, judge us after, I think it was like 10 days or two yep. weeks, whatever it was, and our month, and see how we're doing. And God 
continues to sustain them. They're doing better than everybody else. Who's and then they take away all the good food yeah. from everybody else. <laughs> yeah, everyone else is doing fruit yeah. and vegetables. And they're like, oh, we hate that Daniel yeah. guy. But what I appreciate is the way he brought it. What is going to happen in First Peter 3? But with gentleness and respect. Yeah. The way we winsome. counter, right? It's always about this. And again, we don't know more to the story because the rest of the story didn't happen. The other two examples are going to be different in Daniel. But this first one, the guy... God gives him, and again, there's a winsomeness of life. He'd already starting to get to know Daniel and his friends, but God gives him favor with a ruler, yeah. and the ruler gives him an opportunity. Yeah, that's good. Um, then we've got the situation with the idol. Yeah. Nebuchadnezzar builds this big idol and uh, tells everybody to bow down to it, worship it. This is still in Daniel's book here. And, um, and we actually... Daniel doesn't kind of get brought up in the story. He's not in this we narrative. Don't know yeah. where he's at, but his buddies from the first set of things they Rack, say Shack and Benny. Yeah, Rack, Shack and Benny, <laughs> as the Veggie Tales puts it, uh, which is easier for all of us than <laughs> the, the real names. Um, they refuse to, and they get brought before Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar says, "Bow to the idol." They won't do it. They get put into the furnace um, again. They suffer harm, but they don't suffer at all. They're spared from it. Um, and that actually ends up being a testimony to Nebuchadnezzar in many ways. Um, you get this fourth member in the fire, leads them out of it, and they're fine. Um, what do we make of, of that in yeah. light of First Peter? Yeah, we'll, we'll talk more before we're done today. I, I'm a big fan of the whole concept behind the book of boundaries. But this is a great example, a ruling leader establishes an idol to, to himself, himself. as of me when you hear these instruments bow down that is idolatry in the clearest sense of the word and very similar we talked about this last weekend there was emperor worship in rome the same concept and so these three recognizing god has made it uber clear don't create don't carve any kind of image of anything and worship it they're not going to do this. So as a result, they, and they're so articulate in Daniel 3, when they won't bow down, they get brought before the king. King gives them another chance. Hey, right here in front of me, just, just do it now. We'll call it good. They say clearly, king, we're not going to do this. We don't get to control what you're going to do to us, but we're not, what we can control is what we do. We're not going to bow. Mm. And as a result, like you said, king throws them in the furnace. And, and they say it really clearly, our God can protect us. We're, we're certain of that, even from these flames. But even if he doesn't... That's such a good line. Right? Even if he doesn't, no, O King, there's only one God. And so I just think that's so powerful of this example of being willing to civilly disobey. Maybe civilly is the operative word. Again, not protest, not throwing punches, just... Nope, that's your, your job is to decree rule, laws. Our job is to do what are we going to do with them? And when they violate what God has clearly said, we're not going to do them. And so they do get thrown. The punishment is there. And if God had not have saved them, they would have died that day yeah. for their faith or their convictions of faith. God does uniquely, supernaturally spare them. And again, like we even said this week, that they will glorify God on the day he visits us. Nebuchadnezzar is deeply, understandably impressed with how these guys don't die yeah. and who that fourth member was. And and I, I think when you read, Nebuch uh, read Daniel 1 through 4 is where Nebuchadnezzar ends in the story, I think you see a man of, of Yahweh faith. I think he buys in ultimately and believes and had to be incredibly humbled in chapter 4. 
but believes that Yahweh is the one true God. And this mm. was one piece of that puzzle journey of faith. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. And then you get yet another famous Daniel story, Daniel in the lion's den, yeah. uh, new, new king in charge now. And uh, really not even, he's just kind of foolish, doesn't mm-hmm. even really see what's going on. There's other people that don't like Daniel. They say, well, Daniel loves to pray. And so let's, um, let's rule that people can only pray to you now, king. And if anybody prays to anybody else, then they'll be thrown into the lion's den. And Daniel opens up the windows and starts praying and doing like his every thing, other day, like every other day and uh, gets thrown into the lion's den. Again, this is almost in some ways setting a bad um, precedent for us because we're starting to think you just escape punishment yeah. every time you obey God. Yeah. And before we're done, we'll find out we don't. We don't, but escapes punishment. Mm. He does get thrown into the lion's den, but the lion's den, all the lion's mouths are closed really miraculously. And again, serves as what we are seeing really consistently is something that Peter talks about here, that it is a witness to yes. those that are leading us. The way that we submit does witness to them. Yeah. And um, and so even in his submission to the punishment, and same with the guys before him, uh, that submission sets kind of a tone in the relationship with that king. Um, so yeah, what do we make sense of that one? Yeah, the Daniel 6 story is really fascinating because it is over praying to a king, and this is a whole new regime, not even just a new king, Medo-Persia now, yeah, yeah, yeah. has taken over Babylon, and he survives the change of regime. It's fascinating. In it, what's interesting is that what he gets caught on isn't even necessarily, I mean, they can infer who he's praying to, but it's that he, in the wide open, he prays to Yahweh, and that's how he gets caught. He's, he's not being secretive. And it's fascinating. Would another follower of God found a way to secretly do that and not be noticed? Could could you pray quietly in a space that wasn't obvious? Like Dan, That's why they knew they'd get him, because mm-hmm. this is Daniel's deal. is what he does every day, three times a day, prays towards Jerusalem. We're going to nab him. That's what happens. But could have Daniel changed his mode and still not prayed to the to Darius. Yeah. Yeah. But he doesn't. And, and it's actually what Jesus instructs later is to go into that in your quiet prayer closet, place. right? Yeah. So I, I don't even know that I I could be judgmental. I could be clear on if Daniel would have made that choice. That would have been a violation in some way. It, it wouldn't have been as long as he continued to pray to Yahweh but didn't do it so openly. But Daniel's a man of conviction. He's very old at this point, by the way, too. He's not the young guy from chapter one. But he chooses, I'm, this is not what I'm going to do, either who I'm praying to or how I pray. And you get the point in here, too. He had already lived that winsome life because Darius feels horrible. He gets up yeah. at the crack of dawn, and he's hoping Daniel's still alive. This guy did not want to do this, but gets tricked by these officials who want Daniel to be done. And it's a fascinating story. And like you said, again, Daniel is rescued. But that was the conviction moment. I have been doing this all my life. I'm not going to change this way and who I'm praying to because there's a new law. Mm. And as a result, not only gets the punishment, but uniquely gets miraculously saved. Yeah. And again, in two of the three, real evident of not promoting good. Yes. The the food laws one specific to being a Jew, an ancient Jew at the time where food laws were a really big deal. Um, and then you've got, uh, now we jump to the New Testament. You've got Acts 3 and 4, or maybe it's 4 and 5. Four and, five. 
and um, you've got the guy who writes this letter defying Jewish authorities, the guy who writes First Peter and tells us to submit to governing authorities, saying what what's better, to listen to God or to listen to you, and then coming back a chapter later, being beaten for continuing to preach Jesus and rejoicing over the fact that they were considered worthy to suffer for his name. So that's an interesting it's an interesting thing. Jesus died at the hands of the Romans and uh, all of the apostles end up getting martyred. So there's this sense of martyrdom, suffering for Jesus, um, that clearly comes with some sort of opposition to authority in some way, shape, or form. So what do we make sense of that with First Peter? Yeah, these are such great examples of civil disobedience. And again, what you would say for a biblical non-negotiable. It's basically, don't fulfill the Great Commission. Mm. Stop talking about Jesus is the mandate. And and you're, like you said, Peter says it so good. This is in uh, Acts 4, verse uh, 19. Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him. You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. So they're like, and we were given this mandate to go and make disciples of all the nations. Jesus has clearly commanded us to do something. What you are commanding us to do is in violation of that. We won't. Mm. And they're reprimanded there. And then, like you said, in chapter five, they're actually whipped and beaten because they will continue to refuse to be quiet about this Jesus. And, and, and um, that's like Paul's whole life from there on forward. So many, I mean, when Paul recounts, I think it's in Second Corinthians, all of the ways he had suffered for his faith of being beaten, of being shipwrecked, of being um, run out of towns, uh, stoned, all, the, all the, the, on the list goes. So we see this pattern of almost this expectation in the early church, which I think really probably went a long way for the letter uh, that Peter's writing, because most likely Peter's writing from prison, mm. in prison for his faith in Rome. So they're like, well, wait a second, though. This guy's message is consistent with what he's saying to us. He's not from a different place, different time. Well, you ought to do this. He's like, man, I'm in your era. I'm in prison for my faith, ultimately going to die in Rome for his faith. And he's writing to people who's like, I know what I'm talking about here. Mm. Like, I'm, I'm partaking of this with you, and even in the book of Acts. But isn't it powerful that the author of 1 Peter is the one who chose, but I'm not going to do that. Mm. So he, he gives us very strong, like you said, very clear language, submit to the governing authorities. Uh, Paul writes, we should live uh, quiet lives, and this is for our good, so that these people come to Christ. So they're very clear on what we're called to do. We're not starting a militia. We're yeah. not. Yeah. But they also, by their own actions, and I don't think it's an inconsistency, they, they demonstrate there are times when your convictions, again, scriptural, biblical convictions, are worth saying, I'm, I'm, I, can't, I can't comply. Mm. Yeah. So what I'm, as I'm synthesizing these stories, one thing that's popping out to me that's consistent with all of them is command versus allowance. That's an interesting distinction for me as a Christian in America, where I see a lot of Christians very frustrated about what's allowed in our country sure. versus what is commanded. What I have to do what versus what I'm seeing Versus do. what others are allowed to do who aren't Christ followers or maybe even claim to be, but they're, it's just part of the freedoms 
in America that they're allowed to do these things. None of these instances of rebellion that are biblically appropriate that we just kind of went through, none of them were in response to allowances. Hey, Correct. you're allowing other people to bow down to idols and we're frustrated about it and we're going to fight you on it. No, you're commanding I have to bow down to this idol. Correct. And that's not okay. And that feels like a huge distinction. Um, if I'm if I'm seeing that right, that feels like a really big distinction for us in America to realize, man, the COVID shutdowns, those are like one of, I don't know how many you could even count on one hand of commands that have, hey, everybody has to blank. We just don't do that a lot in America. That's not our, there is a high focus on this, the freedom of the individual to choose things and things like that. Very infrequently is there a, you have to, um, and those seem to be, if I'm kind of synthesizing these well, a precedent for if that you have to is not in line with what God says is holy or righteous um, or is for good, but it's for evil, well, then I can't abide by that. You have to. Yeah, that's. I think that's a really great distinguisher. The, I'd actually have threw a third category in there, and that is when you stand up against injustice mm. that even another person might engage or a governing authority, mm. the South, Martin Luther King Jr. Those are examples. It, it, was, it was definitely allowed, and it wasn't so much commanded. I mean, there were, there were definitely clear distinctions. You may not integrate. You may not have this freedom at a food, at a lunch place, you know, have to ride in the back of the bus, all those things. So I guess you could maybe say, again, they were commanded, but the reality was even people who, I think, and obviously, he is one of my heroes for not just what, that he stood against injustice, but how he did it, mm. always with peaceful protests. And you just watch some of the videos of the ways that uh, African Americans were treated in the South when they would even peacefully protest. Man, I'd get my fists rolled quick, like I'm not standing for this. So I'm amazed at the way he, and even gave his life ultimately for those convictions. But there were even people who were not of, of a black skin tone who came and got involved in those. So you would make the case, they it was allowed, and it wasn't even against them, but they stood up for injustice yeah. and also said, we're going to protest peacefully with you. Mm. That might be a third category, but I think your two distinctions are huge. Yeah. And it kind of goes back to our roots, right? Let, let, let's get in the shoes. I'm 53 years old. I've seen a 53 years worth of history. I know a little more of history before me that happened as well. And I think back to that allowance thing, like why do Christians get so frustrated and I, I think I get why. Like, that's not the issue of how dare you be frustrated of the trajectory that our country is on because they've seen a lot of things change that look like they're moving further away from what seemed like a country who at least, at least had a Judeo-Christian ethic. I don't want to say we're more than that, like a Christian nation. I just think there have been so many holes in who we've been forever that it's hard for me. I don't think there is such a thing. I'll just say it that way. Mm. That's ever been on the earth. And even God's unique people and the way he related to the Jewish people, they consistently failed to keep the covenant. So, I mean, there's just, that's heaven. That's what that is. That's not going to be here. But at least the Judeo-Christian ethic that continues to erode, that's fearful. That's frustrating. That's 
projecting, well, where, how much further, right? So I get the source of angst and, and even fear when we see things that are allowed, that are against the, what scripture teaches. But I think like we've said, the difference is when I'm forced, I'm, I'm commanded to participate in something. When I defy that, mm. and it's against what I'm being directed to is against scripture, that's what these examples at least are. That's what we're trying to do, right? Trying to build kind of an ethic for what would, when is civil disobedience consistent with scriptural examples? Yeah, so. I like that. So you've really got command, um, and if that's in violation of God's word, then we're going to have to civilly disobey that. You've got allowance, and then you've got that almost third category of advocacy. Yeah, it's good. Of because um, I'm thinking of like our friends and partners at Rose of Sharon and the great work that they do with people considering abortion this is such a great, um, again, winsome, gentle, kind ministry, not picketing things, um, but allowing women considering abortion uh, another opportunity to reconsider that and to advocate for their baby. And like, that's a great example great and example. similar to the um, civil disobedience of um, kind of all of that stuff surrounding Martin Luther King Jr. and that movement, man, what a beautiful example again of advocacy for, Hey, this isn't, this isn't okay. And we're not going to keep standing for this. So that's a great third category. Um, now, now let's, let's, let's get into a couple more, um, for those of us like, wow, this is getting really long. Sorry. You asked a lot of questions. (laughs) Um, Let's get into, uh, there were a lot of questions related to the origins of our country. Hey, we are born uh, out of a rebellion against another country. Against, yeah, how do, we, how do we reconcile that? And a lot of, should we have just not done that if we were following uh, God's word? Would we have just not rebelled against England? What do we do with that? Um, and I think the deeper question would be, and let's reflect on how is that impacting our lives and our worldview today that we are still a part of a country born of rebellion how does that how does that get into us yeah. and form us today yeah that's a great question i i don't know that i would be number one aware enough of all the issues we know the catalyst issue was dumping tea into the harbor and saying and that was over again finances we're being taxed, but we have no representation. That's Rome. (laughs) That's Rome in the first century. We don't get to have any say, but you're going to tax us however much you want. So number one, that's not a new issue. But number two, that's the real catalytic moment that was basically that of defiance that now we're going to start a war. I wouldn't be educated enough on all the other factors to say we should or shouldn't have. But let's just say this, in that instance alone, it's interesting how much it was related to our income, our well-being, our finances, that that was at least the straw that broke the camel's back. There's again, that's a very complex issue at a lot of things. But what we can say, even if we pull away from the Boston Tea Party and just talk about, are we a nation that was been born out of rebellion? It's hard to say no to that. Like that just seems our DNA. And it's funny, right? Like we, we for a while lived up in the Pacific Northwest. And they would talk about the people who 
came all the way to the Pacific Northwest as settlers, super independent spirits, super, we are getting away from government control. And, and, and it was like, you know, 150, 200 years before, 100, 100, 150 years before I ever moved there. But I'm like, what does that matter now? These are like, I didn't grow up here. Like, I'm not from this area. But it was amazing to interact. That's like, one look of the at all most, these free spirits around yeah, me. Yeah, it's one of the most, uh, the least churches, churched regions in our country besides the Northeast, which is fascinating, where all the colonies started. And a lot of churches, a lot of colleges today, universities with a very Christian mission. But either way, this Northwest is deeply individualized and we're just doing whatever we want to do. So it's interesting how those roots do maintain, we pass on ideas to our children who then pass them on to theirs. So to say that our country, that we're kind of not formed by thoughts of rebellion and, and rights that really go interchangeably or connected with, with that, I think is short-sighted, mm. especially when you talk to a Christian from South America, or you talk to a Christian from Africa, or you talk to a Christian from Eastern Europe. They're also products of that cultural environment, and it, it reflects upon their walk with the Lord, just like ours does, right? So when it comes to submit to those over you, there are people in other regions of the world that read that, and they don't lose their mind over it, because they go, that's kind of been our political system my whole life and well before me. Now, there's other issues they're going to struggle with differently than we will. But these, this is one definitely germane to us as Americans who are very much about our rights and our freedoms that we're going to get sideways on real quick. And I think more than the rest of the world. Mm. And I just go, that's okay. Like that, that we just have to know that. Yeah, let's not be ignorant. And to then it. the other question is then how do we try to see scripture with less of an American lens, even though we are born, many of us born and raised here, but to try to see this through, again, what is God trying to say that I'm not trying to keep reinterpreting mm. this? It needs to look like me, mm. right? Maybe I'm the one out of whack. I'm the one out of balance. And I need to see scripture more for what it is and what it's saying and less um, through the grid of my cultural, political, socioeconomic lenses that just paint things. I will develop a very different Bible than the one I have in front of me if I just keep Americanizing everything I read. Hmm. And I think that comes back to even that kind of tone setting we did at the beginning of this conversation. Am I in authority over Scripture saying this is what Scripture says or is Scripture in authority over me? And I want to keep coming back to a place that Scripture is in authority over me. That's where I want to keep resting in. I want to keep fighting to get myself back there. And it's a lot of that hard heart work of being honest of, man, I, I'm not in line. And I have to be in a, a posture of humility to embrace that because nobody just walks around thinking they're wrong. Like yeah. that's not just a way that we live life. But to say, you know what? I am in the wrong in my view on these areas as I submit my life to scripture. And let me be okay with that. Let me repent of it and say, Lord, I know your ways are best and they're far better than mine. And so I want to learn to live your way. And as you're talking, I'm just thinking, man, what a great thing to take whatever my idea is about what's patriotic and what's patriotism and put it in submission to this passage in First Peter. Because some of my, naturally, in being a country born out of rebellion, some of the things I might deem patriotic 
might just be rebellious activity that does not fall in line with what first Peter calls of me as a believer that I'm not, there's no Christian anarchists that that's not a thing. You don't have this, you know, screw all order and, and, um, authority that man, that is so not a biblical or Christian view. And so whatever that is in me that says kind of that Pacific Northwest anarchist, or it's that, um, patriotic, um, man, I'm, I'm a rebel, um, kind of a thing, man, I want to, I want to humbly reassess that and say, I can still be patriotic. I can still love my country without embracing the spirit of rebellion in my doing that. And so how can I still appreciate all of these things, but also say, I want to keep coming back and I want to keep being submitted to God's word first and foremost, again, not because we hate or don't respect our country, but because we have such respect and such reverence for God's word. And so I think it's a, a good question for all of us to be asking as we kind of get to this, you know, man, that's part of us kind of a question. Recognizing how do I, how do I make sure I get the cart and the horse in the right order here? And as you're saying that Jackson, I'm thinking, and so does every other people group on the planet need to ask the same questions because they have different biases, but we're fools to say they don't have biases too. So just to make sure we're not saying that somehow only Americans approach the word of God through a grid that is already biased. We're saying everybody does. And so it's everyone needing to acknowledge. And that's the beauty, right, of cross-cultural ministry is you you can pick that up real quickly yeah. in somebody else's bias, but be blind to your own. And then as you kind of rub shoulders a little bit more, you realize, I don't know if I'm seeing this right. I'm being made aware of a blind spot that's coming out into the open and I can notice theirs as well and bring those out in the open Yeah, and then we can help each other. So the global church is a huge blessing on these issues where if we just keep being nationalized, no matter what the nation, the nation, the nation is, we're going to be limited in our perspective. Mm. I just think what a great reason to keep rubbing shoulders with people from different cultures and countries because they're going to help us see scripture in a more full way and in a, in a less biased way than we do yeah. already. Yeah, that's really good. Um, okay, a couple of questions came up about, whoa, 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 if God's in control of who's in control, there have been some pretty evil, wicked people in control. What what do I make of that when I think of Hitler's and Stalin's and um, you look through the Old Testament and there's some just really terrible people in charge there as well. So what do I make of these kind of terrible leaders that I see if God's in control of who's in control? Yeah, no, it's so good. And it's a very fair question. I'm glad for people asking that. And like the questions you showed me, it came up a few times, very reasonable. I think what I have to do, I can look through my own 19th, 20th, and 21st century recent history lens and spot a bunch of those. We haven't even talked about the Khmer Rouge and Asia and all kinds of uh, different things that have just wiped out pure genocide mm-hmm. of people. And those are those are very real examples. I think we also, though, the powerful thing about Scripture is we're not like, oh, because those have never happened before. We see all kinds of examples of people wiping out people groups in mass, and we just go, that had to be horrible, and it was. What What's really fascinating, and I'm, I'm going to make sure I try to get it right, I think it is... Obadiah, it's one of the minor prophets, might be Habakkuk, it might be Habakkuk, 
one of the minor prophets really takes this on and is frustrated and basically here's the argument kind of complaining to to god god you're using this nation to punish us because we have sinned he recognizes his, his people group sin you're using this nation to punish us they're far worse than we were mm. <laughs> what we were doing how does that make any sense and logically right it's like you know someone's out on the, on the playground and um it gets in a fight and the person who comes to break it up is even a worse kid than the one who's beaten the one kid and you're like what is happening here like you guys are all a mess and so back to the fair mindset right which we i sure struggle with that's hard for us to reconcile but god basically comes back to the same thing he'd said in romans chapter 9 there's a lot of things you don't understand about my ways. Mm. He never concedes like, oh yeah, I was taking a nap that day. I, I didn't I didn't think that was happening. Or, I didn't really know how bad those guys were. Yeah. God in full view always knows. And as he allows, that's under his purview again. Mm. And I think it's just a hard reality and in no way vindicates. Because here's what we've talked about before. There is a, we're using the word sovereignty, rightly so, we should. And in some um, theological grids, that just simply means that we just lay down and just watch God do whatever he's gonna do, he's gonna do it anyway. And then another grid is completely the opposite, where we're not always so sure about God's sovereignty, but man, it's up to us, and we better go fix stuff. And he's almost responding to us. He's reacting all the time, yeah. yeah. So I really find that this compatibilism view of theology is so helpful to me. Some call it a cop-out. I just see it both all over scripture that God is absolutely sovereign. But what's also true is that we have a role to play in his sovereign plan and that to fail to step into that, we're accountable. Or to violate what God is doing, we're accountable. So it's as though on the one hand, what I do doesn't ever violate God's sovereignty, but what I am called to do is called to action according again to his word. Mm. He hasn't just like do something. He's given me principles and tenets that I can live according to. And so this both and approach to what God is doing. So back to Hitler, is he responsible for all that he did? Absolutely. And I also believe that there are, I wouldn't use the word degrees of hell, but there are statuses of hell that I think are appropriate to how we live. The punishment fits the crime. God is completely just, well beyond what I think is fair. And so God is going to take care of that. And that's what we'll get into even this next week is entrusting ourselves to God who judges justly. Mm. But anyways, that's that's my best try to understand those horrific leaders who've led both in our time and well before us. Yeah. And so as I'm hearing you say that, that kind of compatibilist view is um, this idea, yes, God is supremely in control, but also humanity and each individual human being also extremely responsible for their actions and choices that they make. Yeah. And so we've got both of those things on display and we have to reconcile that somehow in God's economy, they both work together, that God is supremely in control, yet also at the same time, there is responsibility that's placed on every human being. Yeah, and don't read the re word responsibility as though only responsible for what we do wrong. Yeah. We're also responsible for what we do right. And what have we seen? If ungodly government 
commends those who do right, how much more your heavenly father, mm. right? So we, we have both of those realities. We are responsible for how we live according to what God is sovereignly playing out. So many things, what did COVID teach us? So many things we can't control yeah. that we felt in control of. And man, I, I don't get to be a, make that decision now like I did just a week ago. But in that, those being responsible means also responsible for living godly and how God blesses that. Hmm. Those are both true. What he'll punish, what he'll commend. Yeah, that's good. So let's talk, uh, let's land on, for people who are like, how much longer, <laughs> oh Lord. Uh, let's land on boundaries, uh, which you've mentioned a couple times in this conversation. I think as we look at those three options uh, or those three kind of a command, uh, what's allowed, and then that role of advocacy, um, I think boundaries will be really be helpful to a lot of people listening in that allowance yeah. issue where there's been a lot of conversation recently about, man, I'm so not cool with what's allowed in schools or sure. um, allowed in maybe television or on the list goes, right? There are things that I'm just not okay with what's being allowed there, either for me or for my kids or on on it goes. And so in that realm of allowance of things that are allowed to be, how do boundaries come into play that you feel like, man, that could actually be a significant benefit to some of the people listening to know how to handle some of those areas of allowance? Yeah, if you've ever sat across from me in a counseling situation, you've probably heard me bring up boundaries. I use it all the time, but I've found it in my own life to be so helpful. And boundaries, the premise basically says this, I feel like I am responsible for that I can control this many things. The simple reality is, and this is what I love about boundaries, it's so rude in reality. I can only control and I am only responsible for this many things. Mm -hmm. And they are my thoughts, my words, my actions, my attitudes, my behaviors. Mm -hmm. Now, it doesn't mean I'm not affected by all the impact about these things. Absolutely. But there's a difference. You wear it differently when you feel responsible. Like I have to fix this, mm -hmm. especially in another person. I've talked to so many parents of addicts who wrestle with this so much. I don't get to fix my adult addict son or daughter, but I am responsible for how I respond to them. Mm. That's, that's on me, but I don't get to make those choices. I would make infinitely better choices for them than they make for themselves, but that's not my prerogative. Mm. So boundaries is then applied to these issues today. Let's, let's use one of the real ones we we're talking about on the way in related to public schools. I'm not bashing public schools in any ways. All of our kids were raised in public schools and we were educated. In, you raised at home, but educated in public schools. And we're grateful for the teachers that we partnered with because we believe that an education is actually a parent's responsibility and who they partner with is their option to do. You're a freshman in high school, <clears throat> your teacher going over, you'd hang read Romeo and Juliet. There's multiple cinematic versions of that book and yet chose to show one that had nudity in it, both female and male nudity. And I remember you coming home, telling me about it, and just thinking that violates, again, not just my conviction for my son, I just don't think that has any place in a public school setting. It surely doesn't seem educational because of where we, we joked about if you had people's attention, maybe not before that, you sure got it when that scene came on, and then you lost it just as quickly because now everyone's all talking about you've just seen a nude woman in a school presented video. So <clears throat> what are my options now? I don't get to change that that um, 
a teacher showed that video, it's done. I don't get to change if she's ever going to show it again. I don't get to change that you've seen it, but we can talk about it. We can talk about those realities of images and how powerful they are. And I also have the option to contact that teacher and say, I'm really concerned that you showed this video to your English class where my son was in. Can we talk about why you thought that was a good idea? We had a brief conversation, which I did, brief conversation. She didn't see really any harm of it. And I just thought, I'd like to follow this up more. And when she wasn't responding to my emails, I did loop the principal of the school into the email to see if there could be more. I just wanted more conversation. I knew I can't change what a teacher does in his or her classroom. But ultimately, that teacher got back to me and said, we are not going to show that version. I even said an edited version is for all I care. If you think that version is so great, just please edit that part. But we're going to show a different version of Romeo and Juliet moving forward. Now, that quote might end happy. It didn't for you. You still saw it. But the reality is, is that even if she chooses not to make a change and the principal backs that, that's okay. I, that's what I can do, right? I have a boundary that I'm not on the one hand going to sit passively by. I need to at least pursue the conversation. But on the other hand, if they choose not to do what I would think is best, that's where that's at. And that's on them, yeah. right? That's their responsibility for their role. So I just think I have to operate in that idea of our culture in general. I don't get to control decisions, but I do control what I do with the decisions. Mm. And am I just going to accept them, which I do often. And other times I can't accept that. I'm not without at least a conversation. Let's talk. And if it's so far, like we've said today, that I really can't accept that decision because it violates scripture, then I'm going to civilly disobey. Mm. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah, I think that peace is like, it's almost like the the third option in the scenario. It's like, oh man, there's a, I've got obey, I've got civilly disobey, and then I've got this third option of do what I can do, and that's okay. Whether that be um, responding of like, hey, I'm gonna kind of step away from these things because I'm I'm just not gonna be okay with this. It's trying to influence, which we see a lot of biblical characters like Daniel do, of like, hey, have you ever thought about or could we talk about this? Um, I think that third option brings a lot of release to a lot of the things that we've been talking about today of, hey, I don't just have to sit down and take it. I also don't, I'm never going to get the pitchfork. That's not the situation that we are called to as Christians. But I also don't have to just um, take everything to this level of civil disobedience, which should be reserved for few things. Exactly. But now I've got this other option of, hey, I can... I can refrain and abstain from whatever that thing is, or I can seek to influence it within the boundaries of what's in my control, knowing that I can't ultimately control people's attitudes, hearts, dispositions, or decisions, but I can control what I can control. And I think that gives a lot more relief, at least for me as I'm listening. Man, that gives me another option to go to. Exactly. And I think the issues, even that some wrote in about related to things like school were obviously much greater than if a parent thought that was a good video or not. But I keep going back to, does your child have to be in that school or in that class? What, what options are there to be able to go, that's not going to work. Like this is, this is violating whatever the issues are enough of what I'm wanting to train my child in. 
and is there a whole different form of education than the nice thing in our country? There seem to be at least three viable forms that most people are involved in, whether it be public school or private school or homeschool. Those are all options. And I have to see the world through that lens versus you're not doing what I want you to do. And now I'm going to just pitch a fit. I think there's there's other things as believers back to again. That's not winsome. Yeah, <laughs> that's not attractive. But what do I do? You know, and that the key is also is not well. What can you do? I meet people like that too. It's like no, you can do more than what you're doing, but you shouldn't do that. Yeah. So it's 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 a lot of tension, and I think again, the more biblically informed we are, we'll know when to move forward on that tension and when to pull back. Yeah. Ah, that's so good. Well, thank you for your time. I know it's been a lot of it for this episode, <laughs> but um, I appreciate your time in breaking down some of these issues. And I hope it's been uh, a helpful conversation uh, for you tuning in as well. Uh, probably doesn't answer all of the questions, but I hope it starts good dialogue. And I hope more than anything, um, this establishes for all of us appropriate tone for the conversation that, man, when when we uh, disobey. We want to do it civilly and respectfully. When we even have questions about what Scripture is saying, we want to do it humbly and submit our lives to it, not it to our lives. And um, I, I hope that that just gives you good handles as you and I together, we kind of begin to figure out more and more what it looks like to live as Christ followers in our world today. So uh, if you've got further questions or uh, takeaways that you've got from this weekend's message we'd love to know there in the comments don't forget to give it a like uh, we might get some dislikes on this one <laughs> that's but uh, that's okay um but also man if it was helpful to you i uh, encourage you to share it with a friend as well um as it might be encouraging to them uh, that's all we have for this week we'll catch you guys next week on tangible takeaways